what is up ladies and germs <laughs> i that is such a lame thing to say but well i said it <laughs> so welcome to the mike mantel podcast and thank you for joining me today i you know i sincerely mean that this podcast is like i said it's been a dream of mine and i'm so happy to be able to I feel so lucky to have to be able to talk to these awesome people and to be able to put this out there and to be able to make a project of this and to like make a project of my curiosity and love for learning. I feel so stoked that I get to do this and uh, but it's been hard too. It's taken a lot of willpower and discipline and it's been scary and like it's challenged my confidence and so much doubt. So anyways, it's been a journey and if you're listening and you vibe, thanks. I truly appreciate it. So today's conversation is with a man named Dave Burns. God, Dave Burns. This guy is, I mean, he is an insane human being. And I mean that in the most positive way. This guy is insane. Um, First of all, he's insanely brilliant. He is maybe the most brilliant guy I know, or at least one of the most brilliant guys I know. He's just so good at stuff. He's like mastered the art of learning things and he's just learned stuff impeccably. Um, It's really amazing. And he's also interesting too. He like really plays in some shadow realms, which I love doing, but he like is deep into sales, business and money. And he also does men's work too and help trying to make better men out there in the world. Yeah, really talented dude. And I originally know Dave because, so Dave was my first coach. I met him originally at a, a one taste turn on in New York years ago and yeah, I ended up working with Dave. I've worked with him in several capacities, and he's been a really big influence on my life. I have an incredibly deep and complex relationship with him. Like, he's served me profoundly. Like, working with him, truly, I've seen possibilities in life I never could have thought existed. Like, it's been an incredible experience. And at the same time, like, he's a guy who represents so much of my self-doubt. It's like, he's the guy I can never be like. I can never match this guy. I can never emulate him. And so a big part of my personal life journey has been like, how can I learn from Dave while working with him and still find my own style and not fall into his shadow? And it's funny too, like we play chess online every now and then. And when I lose, I fucking wig out. Like, it's fine if I lose to chess to anyone else, but when I lose to Dave, I lose my shit. Um, so all that pointing to like, we have a comical, complex relationship and it's a relationship I very much enjoy. Anyways, this was an awesome conversation with Dave. We talked about his path in relationship with money and how um, his life has evolved under the lens of money. That was really interesting. And we talked about his worldview and his views on the purpose of life and how he balances seemingly contradictory viewpoints to form his own worldview. And we talked about addiction and his experience with addiction and the power of addiction and my own fear of addiction and the lengths I go to to avoid addiction. So if you enjoy this episode and you like this podcast, please go to iTunes and give it five stars or and or write it a review, the Mike Mantel podcast. I would be so, so uh, freaking appreciative if you do give this podcast five stars or write it a review. Um, it would help me a lot and it would it'd be good for my self-esteem too, for sure. Um, and you know, I think the people I'm talking to have really powerful messages that I want the world to see. So the more I get this out there, I feel like it's a good thing. And I'm also offering a trade too. A trade being, if you give this podcast five stars and or write it a review, let me know on Facebook and I'll write you a sincere compliment. 
I'll look at your profile, study you for a bit, and I'll write you as genuine a compliment as I can. Because, you know, it feels really good to receive a compliment, and I want to get good at giving compliments too. So, um, yeah, for sure. All right, folks, I'll see you in there. Thanks for listening, and hope you have a super day. I hope your day is filled. Yeah, here's what I hope. I hope your day is filled with joy and complexity, and I hope you have a couple surprises and that it's an adventurous day, but that there's also time for you to, like, rest and chill and be at peace. That's the kind of day I hope you have. All right, folks, I'll see you in there. Here's a question for you, Dave. <laughs> Are you an alien? Are you a human being? I'm a human being. Okay. How can you know for sure, though? I can't, but I am. Do you, do you ever wonder if all human beings are human beings? I have to say that this is something that I've spent none of my life devoting any attention to as a question. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Got it. What's a question that's been circulating your consciousness of recent? That's a great question. There are a few. One is, what does integrity mean? Another is, what's the purpose of life? And another is, what is commitment? Wow. Cool. Those are all really interesting questions to me also. And, hmm, what is the purpose? Let's talk about what's the purpose of life. We're just going to go straight question. into that, huh? <laughs> yeah, let's just do that. All right. So what, what have you been contemplating about that recently? Well, it's been an ongoing inquiry for a while. And I know it's kind of a cliche classic one, but I also think it's, it's pretty self-evidently the most important one. And there are a lot of beautiful artists who supply either answers or kind of modes for continuing the inquiry that I have a lot of respect for. Some who I have the most respect for are some ancient Greek philosophers like Xenophon in particular, also Plato, Aristotle. Aristotle is more recent. I will say I've spent most of my time focusing on Xenophon uh, for maybe seven years, eight years. Um, and, and recently I've just been digging into the Nicomachean ethics and Aristotle just crushes, just crushes this question. But also, also I think there's, uh, there's some beautiful... You know, for, for instance, from my understanding of the Zen perspective, and I, I have a, a pretty consistent Zen practice these days. I've been, I've been doing wall sitting where you, you stare at the wall in the Zen tradition for your sitting meditation practice. And I've been reading more Zen cones and stories. And, and I've been, um, to some extent, immersed in that, that style of inquiry. And routinely in Zen stories, you get stories of someone asking a question like this. And the teacher just saying something like "fooey," <laughs> something along those lines is my sense yeah. of the translation. And and so there are these certain perspectives that are quite beautiful. That it's a terrible question. That actually to be asking that question is to be definitely missing the point of life. And then there's this more kind of classical Greek perspective where to be pursuing that question is actually the answer. Wow. Okay, interesting. And do you, so you hold both of those perspectives to some degree? I would say I practice both of those perspectives in different moments. It's, uh, 
one of my primary values in this inquiry and other things is having a healthy balance between contentment and dissatisfaction. Mm, okay. Why, why is that important to you? Or why is dissatisfaction important? Well, you don't, you don't think it's an important question of why contentment is important? I was getting there. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, we'll start with dissatisfaction. One of the reasons why I consider dissatisfaction to be extremely important is that in literally anything from, from the small questions and skills, like, for instance, what's the best way to pour this cup of tea? Or what's the best way for me to be a partner is a little larger. And then let's say, what, what does it mean to live a good life or to be a good human being? Much larger questions, right? In all of those questions, dissatisfaction seems like a prerequisite for uh, at least preserving the possibility of continuation and deepening of the answer. Yeah, that's, religion seemed to really do well with that. Say a little more about that. It seems like people who occupy a belief set inherently are imposing that belief set on others, whether or not they're trying to. And religion is kind of just like this uber person with a massive belief set imposing it on other people, sometimes by its very existence and sometimes by like selling people on it. But it seems like so much of that comes from the claim, which I do think is a real claim, that like suffering is real and despair is real. And there's something about viewing life with this particular worldview that will help people navigate that. Mm. That's beautifully said. I actually did not see that connection before. That's very beautifully said. Thank you. But okay, I cut you off twice, but did you? you were talking about, <laughs> or re redirected you, but you were talking about dissatisfaction and contentment. We'll say, so I've been, I played cello since I was six and it's been on and off. I, I played very consistently for many years through all of college and then, and took some breaks, played a little bit professionally and just recently got back into it and i've been i've been playing in the evenings now and practicing and there's a, a very direct experience of the power of dissatisfaction when it comes to music and th there isn't really any reason to practice or to pay very careful attention while you're playing or or to seek for uh, more and more beautiful interpretations of we'll say a box suite if you don't have some kind of dissatisfaction, if you're perfectly satisfied with how you're playing a box suite, then there's, there's no artistic yearning to go beyond that, to refine your playing still further. Yes. Okay. I want to say something to you that you once said to me, or you at least said it in, I think a class you were teaching, but you said something to the effect of when you're meditating, the question of whether or not to scratch your knee is in some ways the only question that exists. In all of life. If you have dissatisfaction, move to like resolve it by practicing the cello or by scratching your knee or whatever. Yeah. And then the other side of things, contentment, being able to love the moment, being able to be okay with the itchy knee. At the beginning of this conversation, when you said this idea of like, it's the, what is the purpose of life? On the one hand is the most important question to pursue. To me, that's like a scratching of the knee. Yeah. The, the inquiry is a very interesting thing, the inquiry into that particular question. So for instance, it seems like there are only those two options to scratch your knee or to not scratch your knee, or, or we'll say on a, this is it's funny, the example that I was thinking of was earlier this morning, Carolyn and I have a small tea ceremony of three cups every morning in silence is one of our rituals. And I wanted to adjust my position. And I also wanted to treat the ceremony with reverence and consciousness. 
And I ended up in that moment this morning deciding to adjust my position. That feels sort of like a monumental decision to me. Yeah. It really yeah. does. It, it, really, it really does. But on, on a broader scale, this is something like I, I have a, a client, for instance, who's been struggling with the question of should I leave my job or how soon should I leave my job, which is the same question. Ultimately, he's, he's not happy at his job currently, right? Okay, so that is a big question, but there's, you can say there's this third option between scratching your knee, not scratching your knee, or leaving your job and staying at your job. And the third option is to contemplate the question, which is its own activity. You're taking attention away from the action of those things and you're, you're instead putting it into this new activity. You're in a way, you're not quite staying at your job, you're not quite leaving your job, but you're contemplating instead. And they brush off, I mean, the distinction between these things kind of melts away, but I would say the Greek, the Greek answer, and again, very, very broadly, is, is something like you inquire. I remember you said something to the effect earlier in this conversation that in different situations, you'll use different perspectives. That's something I've been finding, I don't know, just been getting interested in recent, like, those are two very different ways of viewing the world, it seems like. And I guess what I'm wondering is like, in your worldview, do they, is there some place they mesh together? Or is it just that you're able to occupy different worldviews at different times? There is, you know, I'm, we're getting into dangerous terrain of getting extraordinarily abstract. There's an answer that I want to give to that question. That's, that's just fucking way out there in abstract land. Um, but I'll see if I can make it concrete. So let's say for now, there's, uh, there's the impulse to contentment and rest allowing things to remain as they are It's connected to the impulse to inaction to just sit there. And then there's also, we'll say the impulse to do and specifically to change through doing to take action such that the world becomes different, hopefully better. Right. Those are two different impulses, but on some level they exist simultaneously for a human being. They certainly do for me. Like I, I want to do things partly for the fun of doing them and partly to change stuff to make it better. Like I want to right now next to my desk, there's a little pile of books that I want to organize. For instance, I could just leave them as they are, but I would really love to organize them. It would be more beautiful to me if that happened. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to do that at all. I, I could be pretty content with just this. I would rather not be bothered by the action of doing that. Right? So those two parts exist simultaneously. And we'll say connected to each of those impulses could be an entire philosophic system. We could say the philosophic system that preaches contentment is the ultimate good. Contentment, regardless of circumstance, you, you could see as a kind of beautiful expression, a philosophic expression of the impulse to not do anything. It's oversimplification, but it's also real. And, and then you could say the, the philosophic system, if you can call it that, of, uh, of being of service and taking constant daily action to make the world a more beautiful place or a more just place, right? You could see that as this blooming of the impulse to do stuff and make stuff better. Okay, so 
because those two impulses right, exist in a human being, I think it, it makes sense to pay some attention to both of the kind of philosophies that emerge from them. Like both of those impulses happen to me, and so there's a use for both of those philosophic systems. Um, and there's a level on which some kind of balance between them is necessary. I believe that like you do actually in given moments have to choose whether you're going to do something, like whether I'm going to clean up this pile of books or whether I'm not, and I'm just going to leave it there and be happy about it. There's the third option of leaving it there and not being happy about it, but we'll exclude that option because it's a bad one. Um, so, so there's, there are those two options. And so there, there does have to be a finite decision that's made. And on that level, there needs to be, I think, balance between them in all of life. But there's also a level, a more internal level, on which union between those two systems is actually possible. And you could say a harmony and alliance between the two impulses underlying them is possible. And in order to access that, you'd basically have to figure out how to move the books in such a way that the impulse to not do anything was totally satisfied the entire time. Or alternately, you could figure out how to leave the books there in a way that made you feel active. Interesting. So both impulses are being fed no matter what you choose to do. That's, that's the meaning of union. And I think that's, that's possible on one level in all circumstances with all kind of uh, fundamental human impulses and the corresponding philosophies. All right, now I, would, I did my best to make that concrete and that was really abstract. So I would love to dive into some more concrete and personal terrain. Yeah, for sure. Although I appreciate you uh, explaining that. That made, you, you put that really understandably. I'm glad. It's a very important topic to me. Okay, this is um, something I've been wondering about you. I'm wondering if you'd be open to, and you, you don't have to go, you can go as detailed or non-detailed as you want, but just give a brief history of your life through the lens of your relationship with money so whatever awakenings you had in relationship with money or whatever does that does that make sense of yeah absolutely i mean there's a lot of directions that could take but I, I will i will try as best i can to be totally transparent around that i've had a fucking weird relationship with money i've had a bizarre and often very difficult and often very ecstatic relationship with money so we all inherit some kind of uh say money patterns from our parents and that was certainly true for me some of, and they translated in a certain way. And I'll say the way they, I'm not going to talk about my parents' relationship with money for the sake of their privacy, but I'll say the way that I interpreted it and kind of absorbed intuitively was a sort of simultaneous sense that money was a non-issue, that there was always money around and that money was a big issue and there was not enough. So both of those feelings were there simultaneously. And on some level that's continued until today. Like I, I still feel those two templates in different moments and sometimes even warring simultaneously. I'll say in terms of actual uh, events and pieces of the journey in my own life, I experienced something starting in college, starting at least in college, and then very much continuing for years after college, where there would be a kind of alternation between being totally beyond broke, and I mean just negative bank accounts for days, 
right? And I came up with all sorts of kind of creative ways, either borrowing a little cash from friends, uh, in college stealing cash from friends. I was a drug addict. Um, there was, there was uh, a way that they fixed this, but there was a way after college you could use PayPal connected to Seamless, the food ordering service, and also Lyft, the car ride ordering service, in such a way that it didn't notice you didn't have money in your account for a couple of days. And so I would eventually it hit your account and you got crazy overdraft fees. But I figured out how to kind of get around and also feed myself pretty well um, by using little kind of devious tricks like this when I was just in the red. And I've, I've done stuff like that a lot. Like I've experienced that many times recurring. And then also alternating with that, these experiences of suddenly getting a bunch of money various ways. I would, I would get a job. Um, I would get a gig. Someone would just give me money. This happened a bizarre amount. Um, but I would suddenly get a bunch of money. And as soon as that happened, pretty much every time I would spend all of it as fast as I could. We could say the budgeting and saving impulse was in no way a part of my life until pretty recently. And so this kind of back and forth between being in the red and, and then just spending with no thought for the future was my MO for a really long time. Now, there was a kind of serenity that happened as a result of that with regard to money. Like I, didn't, I don't have the same fear that a lot of people do of running out of money because it's happened to me a lot and it's not really that bad. Or it isn't in the other kind of um, privileged life circumstances that I happen to live in. So, so I don't have that fear, but there's a huge downside to that problem. Namely, it is genuinely a prudent thing to budget and to save. It is a good thing for human life to be doing that. And that skill, those two skills, you could say, took me uh, an insanely long time to develop because they had no intuitive root. I've had, I would say my, the simplest way to describe my money journey has been versions of going broke and then getting a bunch of money over and over again on bigger and bigger scales. You know, in college, it was on the level of kind of hundreds of dollars or like $60. I would go broke and I'd get $60 and I'd feel like a king, right? And then went up to the thousands and then the 10,000s and then the hundreds of thousands, right? And I've just experienced this at different levels, different scales over and over until finally, and this is actually, um, I'll say two things. First interesting thing was that even when I had a solid and steady income in my current business, I continued to create for myself situations where I got the experience of being broke. And I would do that either by spending all of the money, it was one way. Another way was by putting all of it in an investment account such that I didn't have access to it. So my checking account got to go to zero. Um, or third, I would just stumble into bizarre technological situations where we'll say like PayPal or my bank account would just stop working for a week. But like I kept getting, even when I was making plenty of money, I kept getting to experience being broke over and over and kind of the delight and excitement of that. It took, honestly, my relationship with my wife, Carolyn, and a lot of patience and honesty on her part and uh, a lot of willingness to escape my habitual comfortable patterns on mine to get to the point where I have an awesome budget spreadsheet. 
I have automation set up for finances. I have a solid investment and savings schedule. And you say the, the future is cared for with the same kind of attention as the present. And it's been just a, a delightful shit. It took me such a long time to get all of this in place and learn the beauty of these things. But, but on the other side, it's a, it's a totally different way of living. And I'll say the, um, it's a huge shift for me. The, the kind of superficial excitement of going broke that I've always loved has nothing on the deep, restful, satisfied joy of going to bed knowing that the future is handled. Dude, thank you for sharing that. That was captivating to listen to. And like, um, I just, I really felt like I understood what you were putting out there. I'm glad. It's, it's interesting. Like I, well, I'm sure anybody could relate to either whether or not those patterns, some version of their own patterns. And it was really interesting because the way you were describing that part of you that like really liked being broke, whether it was the thrill of it or, or the pain of it or whatever. Mostly the, the describing... thrill of it. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Um, but the way you're describing that, it really sounded like an addiction. And when I look at that in myself too, like it feels the same way. And I just am, it's so interesting, I think, to look at traits as addictions because there's like, there's some joy that I get from being like on a thin line financially. There's something like exciting about it. Like it feels like I'm like, in some ways it feels like I'm really alive and it's very stressful too. Yeah, it does. I, I, I'm very, very familiar with what you're talking about. I think addiction is not, I hesitate to throw that word around, but it's not totally inaccurate in this context. And f I know for some people feeling broke is actually paralyzing due to their relationship to saving and spending. Um, and for those people, it's genuinely not as fun of an experience. But for me, being broke and having to make stuff work, either either having to make money quickly or just having to like, deal with the challenges of daily life if you have no money in the checking account, that, that got me into flow in a way that very few other circumstances did. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really fascinating. And I wonder if I know one of the, the flows, like eight triggers or something like that. And are you familiar with that model? The flow and triggers. Flow triggers, yeah. Well, you, you'd probably know better than me. But I think one of them was like um, presence of danger. So like surfing is really good for flow states. But that's so funny because there, there's that real feeling. Also, as an aside, um, do you have a suggestion for a lesser... Because I, I hear you on when you said that you wouldn't use the word addiction. And I sensed like... Um, I don't know if this is the right word, but almost a reverence for that word. A reverence? It's interesting. Yeah, I would, most of the time I lean towards words like habit or pattern rather than addiction. Um, reverence might be accurate. I would say I consider addiction to be uh, a tremendously powerful and beautiful force. And I would say it's, it's connected. You could definitely connect it to what we're talking about here. But having been through drug addiction and, and other different forms of that, and also I would say today addiction to loving partnership with my wife, uh, addiction to the kind of spiritual experiences that happened in meditation and business, and, and actually also addiction to growing business um, and feeling the power that those things have. Basically, when the kind of addiction impulse is attached to something that has infinite rather than diminishing returns, ha has me definitely treat the kind of underlying thing with a certain reverence. 
That was really interesting though, hearing you describe all those things as addictions or patterns or whatever we're talking about here, because it made me think like everything is an addiction. That That is a model. Yeah. <laughs> but dude, it's a crazy model because then you just get to choose which addictions to have. For example, one of my addictions is pursuing my sense of purpose. I love that addiction. It's stressful, but I love it. But then at the same time, there's a freedom from addictions too. When you see addictions as addictions there's this space where like you're just kind of watching them happen and like okay with that well i'm actually curious what is your like current experience with addiction like whatever that whatever that word yeah, is to you it happens to be an important topic to me right now because i'm in the middle of starting a nonprofit that's devoted to addiction because i'm i'm broadly pretty dissatisfied with how addiction is talked about and um, and treated and that's that's changing there are some amazing people and organizations working to change that but the um the landscape needs to be changed, and I'm, I'm very devoted to that happening. So my current personal relationship with addiction is something like this. I've been through a few different phases. When you're a drug addict and you go into, we'll say, 12-step programs, then usually one of, like, the, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. It's, and that usually takes the form of admitting that you're an addict or an alcoholic. And admitting that is a big step. And then once you take on that identity as true, right, there's a possibility of spending your entire life stuck to that identity and potentially constricted by it. I would say for most people who get clean and sober, well, actually, I can't even say most. That's totally baseless. I'll say for some people, at least, who get clean and sober, um, for instance, me, it was helpful to have that identity of addict to attach to. And then there came a time where it became, like any identity, I think, it became uh, constrictive and false and a kind of refuge from the reality of myself in life. And so I went through a period of time where I was like, you know, I'm not going to identify as an addict. I am going to continue treating the potentially problematic impulses to do all of the drugs, for instance, and other things connected to addiction for me. I'm going to continue to treat those with all of the tools at my disposal, but I'm not going to think of myself as an addict. So that was kind of stage two. And then I would say right now I'm, I'm at, a, at a different point where I've decided, actually, I, I am an addict. An addict is one of the things that I am. It's not the entirety of what I am. It's not the determining thing that I am, but it is one of the things that I am. And that's an amazing thing. It's a potentially dangerous thing, but it's also an amazing thing. It, it means I have a certain kind of dissatisfaction and hunger that if it's properly harnessed, is one of my greatest allies. That's so such a cool example of you like tuning into a part of your being that maybe at one point wasn't in service to your highest good. And then like going through such that interesting process of identifying with it too, and then disidentifying and then being more free with the identity and then like harnessing that part of yourself to your, in ways that actually serve you. Ah, oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Okay. Do you identify, do you identify at all as an addict? I'm curious. I know in the general sense, you said you could treat everything as an addiction, but I'm just wondering what, what kind of hold that word has for you. For me, I have a big fear of addiction. And it's, it's pretty interesting because I treat, I'm, I like mon monitor that when I use anything that I consider to be addictive, I monitor it very carefully. Like I have spreadsheets where, for example, the policy that I've used for the most successful policy I've used is I have a list of vices. So like coffee, weed, 
porn, and pastries. And what I do is I have, uh, for each one, some amount of times per week that I will allow myself to use that vice. So right now, weed is three. Used to be two, but I'm now testing out three. And every time I use the vice, I rank on a scale one to five how enjoyable it was. So like, was it an awesome pastry? Like it felt so good? Or was it like, yeah, just kind of a shitty two pastry? And then as long as my average is four or over, then I feel okay with the where that vice is at in my life. But if the value that I'm getting from it drops below four, then I'll start having to like question and reassess my relationship with that particular vice. And all of that stems from this like, I don't know where it comes from, but this like really big fear of being, it's actually not addicted to things, it's like dependent on things. Like I don't want my happiness to be dependent on my coffee for some reason. I don't know, it's just um, there's something lodged in there of that nature. That's actually, I think, a very powerful intuition. There's something in, in Xenophon's memorabilia, he says that Socrates, he recounts this conversation Socrates has with someone where he says, um, I believe that uh, to need nothing is divine. To need as little as possible is, is, is close to the divine. That what is divine is best. And so to need as little as possible is best. And there's this kind of, there's something intuitive about that of, of the kind of the fundamental good of self-sufficiency and, and independence, independence in the real sense, not just the interrelational independence. But like, if you know someone who's just able to sit there, like for example, a Buddhist practitioner who can literally just sit there for days, right? There's something fucking cool about that as a human being, like that demonstrates some fundamental human capacity. So I, I totally feel where you're coming from there. Well, I think. For me, it's addiction isn't one in that sense, but like something about what I'm pointing to is some sense of like, uh, there's something about discipline. For me, it feels related to this because I wasn't addicted to anything. I was addicted to abstaining. So for me, that looked like in, from the ages of like 18 to 23, I was a meathead, like a real meathead. Like really? I lifted weights every single day. Wow, and, every day, yeah. that's unhealthy. Yeah. It did. <laughs> it was too much. It was too much. I love that. Um, but I just like lived in the weight room, and it I was. I had no idea about this. Yeah, but but also I was. I mean, it was an interesting time of life because I was also like a real party boy. Like, was in a fraternity, drank beer like four nights, like a lot of beer four nights a week. And but the interesting thing was when I when I was living in the weight room, my diet like I had imposed some insanely strict diet on myself. And actually, I had a, a friend, and I essentially just like improvised our own diet and then fueled each other's uh addiction to abstinence to have like the most rigid diet i think I, like i didn't eat a i didn't eat a cookie for like a year like i i just there was just like there were no exceptions made but it was coming from this place of like real insecurity like i was really muscular and like low body fat and i'd look in the mirror and just like people with anorexia, but I think there's a different name for what I was going through actually, um, would, would like see fat, fat on my ribs that wasn't there. And it was just like, I had to get leaner. So I have to eat less cookies or I have to like eat even healthier. So there's some sense of like, I'm so, uh, there was this deep insecurity running that show. And it was actually interesting because I remember I got quite afraid that, but I, I just got so afraid of my own vanity also which was stemming from like this real desire to look at myself and like to be muscular and look good. But it was so confusing because it, it was stemmed with this insecurity of also looking bad that I, so I quit lifting altogether. I quit exercising essentially for a long time because I was so afraid of this whole complex that was going on. I was afraid of the vanity, but it's kind of cool because in a recent, 
recently I've just re re like um, oriented myself towards movement and now just like movement as a practice to be in touch with my body like dance dance feels so good because it's just a way to let the body be alive by itself so I've had this like re-emergence of love for connecting with my body and for appreciating my body I now like it's it's enjoyable to uh to see my form and like I like when people appreciate my form and I'm getting um into well this is actually interesting that this is happening uh, I'm I'm starting to get now into nude modeling too for like art classes because there's something about like uh, the form being appreciated but it's kind of been this cool turnaround where this thing that like used to be the ultimate ball of my distress like anything related to my body at all has turned itself around into being just like a really beautiful way to enjoy life I find that was what what you were saying reminded me of of a couple of things. The first was this Alan Watts sometimes talks about this funny Buddhist teacher trick where you, you tell your student to go meditate and get rid of all their desires. So they do that for like 10 years and then they come back and have a conversation in the conversation, the student realizes that this entire time they've just been feeding the desire to get rid of their desires. And they realize that they're ultimately fucked. And ho hopefully that's the moment of enlightenment or killing their teacher. But uh, the second thing it reminded me of was there's something very interesting with, I, I love the story of your workout and its connection to insecurity. And I was having a similar conversation with about money uh, and, and business and productivity yesterday with a client. And there's, there's something very interesting that happens where people will, will say, do business, make a bunch of money, be very productive, largely because of their insecurity, because of wanting to prove something to themselves and others for a period of time, they'll become very successful. They'll ultimately run into an experience of the total hollowness at the heart of everything they've been doing. And then hopefully they find some kind of path to show them another way of, of more intrinsic fulfillment, right? But then there's a very interesting turning, turning point where people will either, you could say, um, move wholeheartedly into the spiritual domain and, and become totally inactive for a long period of time. Or, and when this happens, it's actually often correlated with people running out of savings, They'll, they'll have like become very successful. They'll go on their spiritual journey and then eventually they'll run out of savings and be like, okay, well, well now, now what? Um, and but for whatever reason, either, either because of practical concerns like that or because we'll say they've, they've run into uh, a dissatisfaction on the other side of the pendulum. All of a sudden they've been away from the world and dealing with it and they realize that a core part of their fulfillment is actually doing stuff, contributing in some way. So they'll they'll need to re-engage with the world and with money and with business from a totally new vantage point and be productive and create things at least as relentlessly, particularly if they've, if they've started tapping into what you could call their heart of service, right? Without it being fueled simply by insecurity. And it's a fascinating turning point. Dude, it, it, and it's, but it's so interesting that like, both of those forces, the force of like, whatever the set positive motivations are, the heart of service or, or love or purpose or passion or whatever, like, 
that in some ways is just as strong a motivation as the insecurity. Like they can both blast a person on the path of mastery of something. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, to be honest, so I've, I, I did not have quite the story that I just described. Mine had a different order to things, but I, I do have insecure. I'm, I'm very, um, say doing business consciously is very important to me making money consciously and being productive consciously are very important things to me. And part of my motivation for doing those things still is insecurity. There is a part of me that wants to prove something to myself and others. It's not the only part that's there, but it's totally a part. And that part gives fuel along with what you could say, the heart of service and the love of the art and the love of action and seeking flow, all of these other reasons, but the insecurity is still there it's uh, the, the fruits that are born from the action now taste better because it's not the only thing that's there. How much of the point do you think is that the insecurity just falls out of the motivation? And how much of the point is just like getting all of the motivations on the same team? I don't know. It doesn't matter if it's there, but just knowing, being conscious of its existence. Yeah, people, man, people really disagree about this. There are a lot of people who are a fan of, um, you say, cultivating permanent, untouchable self-worth, right? Just a, a sense of self-love and acceptance apart from any doing, right? That, um, that just kind of hangs out regardless of how productive you're being or how much money you make. I'm actually not of that school. I'm, I'm also not of the school that it makes sense to, what did you say, uh, attempt to improve your sense of self-worth exclusively by doing things, making money, being productive. Right. But there's, there's a middle point that has been incredibly useful to me, which is having the sense of self-worth attached to an activity, but having the activity be a state of becoming rather than of being. What's the difference between becoming and being? Well, be being is static. So there's a way to, for instance, derive self-worth from how much money you have in the bank account. Or we'll say there's a way to derive a sense of esteem and worth from how good a partner you're being, right? This is something I fall into sometimes. Um, but there, there's also a way to practice just self-worth where you just love yourself regardless of how good a partner you're being and you scream at your partner, but you still love yourself and it's all good, right? But then there's this other thing you can do where you have a sense of self-worth attached to your process of improving. And as soon as that happens, you basically get all of the benefit of insecurity without any of the downside, because you're, you're always capable of improving. That's totally in your control in every moment. Oh, got it. Dude, I'm, I understand what you're saying. That's cool. That's really tricky too. <laughs> it's a tricky practice, but it's super, it's connected to the kind of growth fixed mindset that Carol, Carol Dweck talks about, but it's almost universally applicable and, and has been one of the most impactful things on my journey. Got it. So linking your set. Wow. Okay. I mean, the, the, that's setting off like lights for me right now, just because it's so clear. I'm going through just a rough patch right now where it just feels like things aren't uh, moving and things aren't happening and it's harder to find clients than it usually is and just stuff like that. And I notice my, the effect on my self-worth, it hurts. It hurts my self-worth. But for me, it's just becoming so clear that like, I'm so habituated to associating my self-worth with um, 
being with my current status of where I'm at right now. And God, the shift of, am I improving? Like, yeah, of course I'm improving. Like I'm improving like crazy, improving more than I ever have before. Wow, dude, that's really cool. I am. That's profound. That's a profound way of viewing things. This actually feels like a good place to stop. Great. Unless there's anything else that you want to put into the field. There's not. Cool. But I would like to give you an opportunity to share um, what you do in the world and how people can reach you. Oh, great. Yeah, I run a company called The Business Monk. I'm also starting this, this addiction nonprofit simultaneously, but that'll be linked on The Business Monk soon once it's up and running. Um, but the, the Business Monk is a company that's devoted broadly to what we've been talking about, but specifically to dissolving all of the artificial barriers between doing business and spiritual practice and fulfillment and ease. I would say its mission stems from the fact that most of my life I felt a huge split between work and the things that mattered to me like meditation and relating and, and all of the kind of nice, juicier, fulfilling things. And then there was a point where business for me actually became one of my primary spiritual and growth practices. And, and when that switch happened for me, then business itself actually started to becoming effortlessly successful in a way that before it had always been a huge challenge. And so so the company offers trainings and workshops and some one-on-one -on -one coaching, public speaking, speaking at different companies that are all on this topic of, of dissolving the barriers between business and everything else that matters in, in the most practical, actionable ways that we can teach. And it can be found, uh, information for inquiries, et cetera, can be found at thebusinessmonk.com or um, for, for speaking and training inquiries directly, people can email info at thebusinessmonk.com. Hey friends, thank you for tuning in. I hope you got something out of this episode. I know that I sure had a blast with it. If you enjoy this podcast, please head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. I'm offering an exchange right now where if it feels in alignment for you to give this podcast five stars, then send me a message on Facebook, let me know you did it, and then I'll sit down, take some time to grok your profile, and I will write you a thoughtful and sincere compliment. Truly, please take me up on it. And if this episode touched on something you think a friend might find titillating, pass it on to them too. And I just want to say, I bring my utmost sincerity to each of these conversations, and I really do want to spread vibes and information that cause people to reflect and deepen and just live a more honest, kind, and vivacious life. Because I really believe that the state of the world needs everything that we can give it it needs people to be at full capacity it needs people to be living their life fully and giving their greatest positive impact to humanity and so if i can just flick over one domino with this podcast that flicks over a couple more that lead people into living their life fully and giving back to the earth then by jove man i will be a happy dude so trying to do my part here and any help love and support i would just so greatly appreciate and at the very least, I am super appreciated that you listened to this episode and much love, folks. I'll see you next time.